The title of tonight's talk is A New Paradigm. Excuse me for the coughs. So I'd like to talk a little bit about um, uh, living into your own freedom and the new paradigm that the Buddha offered us, the insights that he brought forward that we can understand, put into practice, and then realize for ourselves. And also tonight, I'd like to also um, introduce myself a little better. I feel like uh, maybe we haven't had a chance to get to know each other all that well, you all being in silence, and this already being day two, and I feel like we're all just sort of meeting. Um, so that will happen also in this first talk. <clears throat> in my earlier life, um, I was raised uh, in a household that was sort of dominated by science. As I mentioned earlier, my parents were neuroscientists. And I actually spent a lot of time after school going to visit my mom in the lab and seeing the neuroscience uh, happening. And it was sort of common at the dinner table to sort of talk about science and talk about um, the latest discoveries. And I was quite good at math and science growing up. So that was sort of my worldview. Uh, growing up. My mom had been um, fairly mistreated by her form of Catholicism, and she uh, disliked it very much. So that was also part of my worldview growing up. Um, Anti-religious, pro-science, and science with a mission, not just science for science's sake. It was science to eradicate wrong view, as my mom understood it. And I went on into college and became a physicist and worked in a, um, a lab that studied molecular biophysics. And I'll talk a little bit about that. But during the summers, I would spend a lot of time in the Canadian wilderness where I would do uh, canoeing for six weeks with a group of people. And <clears throat> while that was happening, I was having these very profound experiences out in the wilderness that was not reflected by my scientific family. I would come back and try to describe these experiences and I had no language for it. The deep sense of well-being, the deep sense of place, the smallness, but the, the beauty of my smallness compared to the vastness of the wilderness, or sometimes the perfection and the simplicity of just being by a lake at night with the sun going down and the water would get flat and a few ducks would go by. And it just felt so incredibly simple and perfect. But I had no language for that. And in my family, that didn't really resonate with uh, their own experiences that much. And so I was moved by those experiences, but didn't really know how to find them outside of living in the wilderness. So <clears throat> what I wanted um, to just is a tiny bit of an intro. Um, I wanted to talk about as being raised uh, in, a, in a family that is so uh, delighted by science and then studying science, there are certain uh, um, heroes that stand out in Western science. And these are people who uh, studied the world very closely and were able to suspend the beliefs of the time. And by deep intimacy with some area of the world, through that intimacy, would discover a new understanding that mapped on better to what they found 
than the previous understanding, and that would bring in a new paradigm, a new radical understanding, a new basis of understanding. And so the one that is most accessible to all of us is the Copernican revolution. And we take it for so granted now, at least I hope we all do, (laughs) that the earth goes around the sun. Let me just stop there. Any any questions? And that the sun is, uh, the earth is not the center of the universe. The sun is not the center of the universe. And our galaxy is not the center of the universe. Each one of those took a leap because it's not our first-hand experience. So when we have our first-hand experience and we build our understanding off that, even well-intentioned, we live on a flat earth, it doesn't seem to move very much. And the sun moves through the sky, the stars move through the sky. And that sort of formed the paradigm that many people were living up uh, until about the 15th century, uh, 16th century. This sense that the, that the, the earth was the center. And that's, that is basically, I mean, who could question that? That's the, the basic experience that you were born into, you walk around with it. People don't even need to convince you of that. It's so obvious that, of course, you would base your worldview on that and hardly even question it. The problem actually comes as you get more intimate, as you grow to love the world, as you go to have a deeper intimacy with the world, that understanding begins to cause trouble with what you find when you're more intimate with the world, the moon, the sun, and the stars. And it's because of deeper intimacy that you actually, the previous paradigm begins to crack and fall apart. Even though it's been common and everybody agrees upon it, it doesn't map onto your experience, and so it causes a bit of dissonance. There was a man named uh, Tycho Brahe, who was a, a Danish astronomer. And back then, studying the stars was your way of appreciating God. God had made this incredible planet, and out of your loving any of it, you were loving uh, his creation. And so Tycho Brahe loved the heavens, and he developed, um, with, the, with some uh, financial support, a whole new way of measuring with precision the way the stars moved. And measuring the way the stars move was appreciating God's artistry. So he wasn't out to, he wasn't out to rock any boat. He was out to kind of just love the universe he found himself in. But by studying the stars very closely, one thing that happened in his lifetime was there was a supernova and a new star appeared in the heavens. And that's not supposed to happen. So there's a new star, and that already uh, shakes people's understanding that the heavens were supposed to be set. But suddenly there was a new star. He's studying that. He's studying the way the planets move. And there was such a fundamental belief that the earth was what was permanent and the, the uh, stars were moving that they tried to figure out what was God's plan around that because it makes no sense. It's very hard mathematically. There's a belief that God was a good mathematician. So everything should work. And if you studied it well enough, you would get why the planets moved the way they did and why there would be tides. But it was, it was very uh, complexing why there were two tides a day that was one realm that people wanted to study. 
and why the lights in the sky moved the way they did. And it's fascinating, and not, not of this talk, to, talk, to see how complicated they made their math to try to rationalize their view to see how the planets move. It got very complicated, and none of it really fit. And when Tycho Brahe measured everything with great precision, they couldn't find the math that would actually add, add that all up. So then you get uh, uh, Kepler, Copernicus, and Galileo coming in, and they say, if you start with um, this data, if you don't put the Earth at the center, everything maps on. And Kepler comes in and says, if you don't have the planets go in circles, perfect circles, but in orbits, in elliptical orbits, the math even works out better. And then you have Galileo come in and he makes a a very precise telescope and can see the phases of Venus. And he can see the topography of the moon. And with that direct experience, he can see that there are planets just like, uh, with characteristics like we have on Earth. And he opens up with a much more confident view of a heliocentric view of our solar system. And then many of you know the response of the church was to imprison him. He he was under house arrest, which gave him a lot of time to write his books. (laughs) But the church fought that. It fought it. It was heresy. And there's a lot, you know, that's also another talk, why they would fight it that hard. But yeah, what we have to understand now is that the views that we take for granted were could not have been conceived of because the views at the time would not have made room for them. Yet now we're comfortable with it. Um, at least someone said they're not comfortable with four billion stars and <laughs> how vast the universe is. And it, it's awe-inspiring. Um, but as we begin to be more intimate with our universe, that understanding helps us uh, hold that relationship. It actually maps on. So the Buddha's truths are not imposed truths, but as you get more intimate with your own experience, which is the development of mindfulness, as you get more and more intimate with your own direct experience, and then ask a few sophisticated questions that, again, deepen intimacy, help you discover things you might not be looking for. You're not bringing these truths onto your experience. You're exposing your direct experience. These truths cause a new paradigm. They cause you to live into a new paradigm. And it's actually something that at first is frustrating, is disturbing. But as you accord yourself with it, as you align yourself with these uh, new truths, this new paradigm, you find that it's less frustrating. There's less suffering. There's less uh, aggravation in your life as you accord with these truths you find with deeper intimacy, deeper intimacy with yourself and the world around you, but mostly with yourself. So in the Satipatthana Sutta, which is uh, the the classic uh, teaching on mindfulness and how to practice mindfulness, we're asked to sit, uh, sit still, and become uh, contemplatively intimate with different areas of our first-person experience. 
We're asked to become intimate with our body, intimate with whether we're finding our experience pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. We're asked to discover what each of our mental and emotional states are like when we're experiencing them, right when they're happening. And then we're asked to look at these patterns and how they play out, how the patterns of our system play out and either generate a type of uh, suffering and aggravation or a sense of freedom, a sense of relief of this underlying agitation. These are the four foundations of mindfulness. We're going to go through this um, more closely. But this is the Buddha's investigation. This is the Buddha inviting us to be our own scientist. It's not quite science because there are rigors in science that can't be applied to our first-person experience um, as closely. There's no, nobody else that can verify your work, which is very important for scientists. But I can't get in there and say, oh, yeah, yeah, you got that one right. <clears throat> but you can yourself. You can go into your own experience and see what's going on. So as you become more intimate with the body, for example, the reflection is once you can calm the mind down and be collected and steady enough and not too distracted, not too agitated, once you can establish mindfulness in the body, you then reflect, is there anything here that is permanent? Is there anything you're experiencing that lasts throughout time? And as you look You might say, oh, yeah, 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 I can feel my bones. They last throughout time. If you go down and you really experience it, you can feel subtle vibrations all through your body. And in those vibrations, you can say, yeah, it's not as permanent. It's not as solid as I would have thought. There actually is change on every level. And then you systematically go through different aspects of your experience And you ask the same question, is there anything here permanent or lasting? And when you have mindfulness and a type of intimacy with that experience, you can discover that anicca, impermanence or unreliability, is uh, the mark of everything you find in your body, in your emotional uh, realms, and in your mind. It's It's all characterized by impermanence. Then when you uh, can be with anicca, which is challenging because everything's changing, but if you can settle in the field of anicca within your body, you find that you can ask the second question, is it satisfying? Is it reliable? Can this give you the type of happiness and security that you're looking for, given that it's unreliable and it's changing, given that uh, within a certain amount of time, that experience will have passed? And if you look at it, you're not forcing this interpretation onto your experience, but just by being intimate with your body, intimate with your heart, intimate with your mind, you can find, no, it's actually not that reliable. It's a changing experience. So I I cannot organize myself in a way to find happiness and relaxation and well-being if I'm trying to ground it on something that's going to disappear. So... That's another maturity that we have to have, a relationship to things that change. And then the other question he asks us to ask in the middle of that experience, is there anything you can claim as a self, as a persistent self, 
as a persistent characteristic of who you are. I am this body. Well, if you look at it, if it's all changing, what would, they, what would there be you would call a self? Well, I may be my thoughts and opinions. Then you can see they also are not lasting. They change. Um, I'm this sense of a guy being here that this is all happening to. That one seems like, okay, I could, I could probably call that the me in here. And if you get intimate with that, you can see that also goes through changes. It's also not stable. So there's nothing in yourself when you're intimate with your experience that's lasting. There's nothing that you can find a reliable um, sense of well-being connected to, given that it's all changing. And there's nothing you can claim as self. That takes... Uh, an increasing sense of intimacy with yourself. That takes an increasing sense of intimacy with all the experiences that are happening that we are claiming to be a self. We are claiming to be uh, reliable. We are claiming that this is where I can actually find a sense of ease I've been looking for in this body, heart, and mind. The new paradigm that the Buddha offered us is that even though it doesn't it may not be our first impression of what it's like to be human. As we deepen our, um, deepen our intimacy with ourselves, deepen our mindfulness within our experience, we find these three characteristics, the impermanence, the lacking of, of, of satisfaction, and something we can claim as a permanent self. These are called the three characteristics of all conditioned experience. Everywhere you look, inside and out, you can see that this universe is mostly comprised of changing experiences. So where in there could you find happiness and well-being? Happiness and well-being comes in the capacity to not need things to be other than they are. To not need things to be permanent. If you're okay with things changing, then you won't be thrown as they change. You won't be disappointed or uh, disoriented as things change. If you weren't expecting anything to give you lasting happiness, you won't be disappointed when it doesn't. And if you're not needing there to be someone in here that you can rely upon, some consistent being inside, some lasting being, then you also won't be disappointed as you find that you go through changes. It won't be disorienting. You kind of expect it. I lent my car to a good friend of mine over the summer because I wasn't using it. And it came back with some dings on it, some scrapes, um, more paint in some areas and less paint in others. (laughs) <laughs> she was painting her house. It was missing um, one of the rain gutters on it. And uh, it took me a moment to uh, live into the new paradigm. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> but I could. 
because I'm not expecting my car to be perfect. I'm not expecting my car not to age. I'm not expecting my car not to get dinged and scratched. When I moved into a house a year ago, um, we put in this beautiful new floor, and, and uh, there was a moment where the floor had no scratches on it. And so everywhere we walked around, the beauty was, was incredible. We hadn't expected it to look that beautiful. And the way the light would bounce off the floor and there'd be a perfect, uh, almost mirror-like finish on the floor. And there was an underlying tension. I really like it like this. <laughs> but it won't last like this, so I'm going to not be attached to it. But I also don't want to be careless, and so I had to find some type of balance. And yes, there came a time of that first deep gouge from a friend who came by, and the challenge that made to the friendship that they were the one who ruined this perfect finish. And so I've been at this game for a while. I knew it was coming. But I didn't know it was going to happen that day. (laughs) So I didn't know I was going to have to work that hard that day to update myself to the fact that this floor, it had a birthing moment. And because it had a birthing moment, a moment that didn't exist and a moment that it did, that it would go through a natural aging process and maybe I might outlive it or it might outlive me, but that the aging process was going to lead to some type of decline. As I align myself with Anicca, I suffer less. You might try to over-align yourself with Anicca and not care and protect things because they're all going to change. You could divest yourself so much that would be uh, too skeptical. So it is about coming in and appreciating things, caretaking things, but knowing that they're going to go through a changing process and the changing process is an aging process. Things change and they tend to go through an aging process. That which arises passes, but usually before it passes, it goes through some type of aging process. And that's what this characteristic of Anicca is. We can all hear this and nod and understand it. So that's already some level of saying, okay, yeah, that's probably the way things are. And still be disappointed when we find that's the way things are. So it's one level to understand that things go through an aging process. Things that have a beginning have an ending, and in that process they age. It's another to actually live into the new paradigm not just understand it, but make it your actual fundamental orientation so that you're not thrown when things go through Anicca. Going back to this uh, Copernican revolution, again, many of us believe, um, it's not even just a thought-based belief, but there is a lot of evidence that uh, the Earth circles the sun and and is the Earth that's turning And it's really fascinating if you try to do this on a good starry night. Actually, see if you can behold that it's the earth that's turning. As the sun goes down over the ocean, and you can stand to look at it. If one is the sun is setting, that's one view. Another is that the earth is rotating away from the sun. And you can try that. There are two different views. One's a common view. The earth is steady and it's the sun that feels like it's moving. The other is, what if I'm on a huge globe 
that's spinning. And that's why this object is receding and then going into, going beyond the horizon. You can actually ask that question. This is an experiment you can do. You can hold these two views. You just have to be there and be willing to do that. You don't need the Hubble telescope to prove this. This you can do with your own eye. But you have to be able to suspend this fundamental belief that our common sense is that the earth steady and the sun moves. Be there right at the right time and you can actually feel it. You can actually get the sense, God, it would have to be massive. It would have to be so big. It looks so flat. That means that it has to be that round. Oh, and there goes the sun at that pace below the horizon. And then you're actually in that moment, submersed in the paradigm of a heliocentric solar system. Then you go about your day, and the sun's moving through the sky, and we talk about sunrises and sunsets, because it's a little easier but you still have this more deep fundamental belief that you couldn't be thrown from. It's actually the sun that's moving, the earth that's moving, not the sun. This is our task. This is our task to use mindfulness, intimacy with our experience, so that we have such a relationship, such a continual relationship of anicca, that we flip over into the new paradigm. It may start in moments where we know it's true, but we don't live it. And then as things change, your car gets dented, or um, you break something in your house, or you look at your own body aging, and you say, oh, this is a Nietzsche, this is a Nietzsche. And if you are intimate with your world, and you are asking, is there permanence or impermanence? Gently but persistently asking this, you can adopt this new paradigm, and you'll find that there's less confusion, less frustration. When reality does what it was already doing, it's just we were misaligned with it. Copernicus didn't make the earth go around the sun. He just was aware of that possibility. Isaac Newton didn't make gravity be a massive force controlling the universe. He was just open to that interpretation. And Nietzsche is not something you have to force on your experience. It's something that you can experience and by being intimate with your experience, see that Nietzsche is actually a very persistent and consistent um, truth about conditioned experience. So it doesn't, it doesn't take rocket science. It just takes a willingness to be intimate and present, and then ask that question. And the asking of the question might start intellectually, but you can actually come into the pulsing, let's say, of your heart and your body, and you can feel the pulse throughout it. And when you feel the pulse throughout your body, it takes a lot of intimacy to do that, but the pulsing within your own body shows you how much your body is not stable, how much it's a very dynamic, changing process. When you allow yourself to be submerged in that, then Anicca becomes the guiding understanding, not as a belief system, but as, uh, as a, um, a self-evident truth. It'd be hard to convince you all again of the flat earth paradigm. 
So it would be hard to, again, convince yourself that there are permanent things and therefore be disappointed when they're not. So that's aligning with anicca. Aligning with dukkha. And we'll, again, talk more about dukkha. But aligning with, because things are inconsistent and go through an aging process, trying to arrange yourself some type of security, some type of relief that you can then be done. I can actually be relieved and done because I finally have my world set up this way. That is a, that's a, it's a kind of a, a, even an early childhood stage of development, trying to, what can I rely upon? And like this bell has been here for several years, so we don't need to keep getting a new one. (laughs) It's been here, so we do rely upon this bell. But this bell will change. And this bell may be stolen one day or moved somewhere. So I can't rely too much on it or I'll be, uh, I'll fall through that reliance when the bell goes through a changing process. But I don't have to be so, uh, um, so attuned to each other. I can't find some satisfaction, some happiness, some relief that there is actually a good bell that stays here. But I can't, I can't solidify that, that relationship because of the underlying anicca. And then the characteristic of anatta tends to be the one that uh, um, the dawning of that, the, the dawning where you can live in the paradigm of anatta is, is one that grows um, slowly, and maybe a little more slowly, because asking and perceiving where we're generating this belief in a concrete self and being able to be intimate there to see that all the things we're trying to define about ourselves and then therefore have something predictable and reliable, that it, we're more fluid than that. So finding it, becoming intimate with it, and then opening up to the anatta paradigm but you can do it. You can do it in seeing that your body is going through a changing process. So that's fluid. The body is a fluid process. Your ideas and beliefs are fluid processes. Your emotions are fluid processes. So again, with intimacy, you can see that there really is no fixed self. And everywhere you intuit there might be a fixed self, just explore that. See if you can calm your mind, be intimate and connected, and say, is this some aspect of a fixed self? Is this some aspect of an unchanging me? Is there a me here at all? And then as um, Stephen was talking about, understanding that we live in a conditioned world and things arise due to the conditions supporting them. So taking anatta even further, you can take it to the sense that there really is no temple here talking to you on one level, temple as a noun. But if I allow myself to be completely in process, governed by patterns that do give some form of consistency, but nothing permanent, 
if I can be comfortable with that, and you all can be comfortable with that, then we get to live in the relief of anatta and not be frustrated as each one of us goes through our fluid process, moment by moment. What stands in the way of our ability to deepen this intimacy is our, our, our previous views and opinions that might be in the way where we can't suspend them enough to even go down there and see is there permanence, is there satisfaction, and is there a self. But there are also states of mind that arise consistently that make that difficult that block our ability to be stable and intimate with our body, emotional life, with our mental life. And these are known as <clears throat> the five hindrances. And maybe many of you have heard about the five hindrances before. But just to highlight them and show you some of the Buddha's advice on it, if what's happening in your mind is one of these five mental states, you'll find that the ability to be calm and present and therefore being able to ask these questions and see the self-evident nature of these characteristics is blocked because of what's happening in the mind at that time. So they're called hindrances because they hinder that capacity to be mindful and to explore these, uh, these self-evident truths that take some degree of intimacy to make uh, obvious and self-evident. These five hindrances, they come and they go, so they don't last. But while they're present, they make being uh, connected in mindfulness very challenged. And the five are what's called um, kamachanda, which is one often translated as sensual desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness, and doubt. And I wanted to look at uh, the first one, Kamachanda, which is again sometimes called sensual desire. I wanted to look at the Pali of that because that's the one I think that as lay people we have to be very careful of. Sensual desire may not be that agitating. So just desiring uh, pleasure at the senses doesn't necessarily have to be a big hindrance. When you look at the word chanda, chanda is a type of a strong aspiration. So chanda can do many things. Chanda can be unproductive and it can be productive. The desire for your own liberation, that desiring of the mind is also chanda. So kama chanda is not just, oh, wouldn't it be nice if it was cooler? It's not, I hope that there's a nice dessert at uh, lunch. <clears throat> it's not just um, sort of mildly uh, preferring things to be different. It's a type of the way the mind locks on and plans and aspires towards and is somewhat obsessed with some type of sensual experience. 
wanting to hear something different, or if there's something beautiful, wanting it to stay, but there's a strain in that wanting. There's a, um, there's a deep longing. And that doesn't allow you to come into the experience you're having as it is and be intimate with the way things are. There's too much longing for something to be different. Longing for uh, pleasure, some type of pleasure you're not experiencing. So that blocks intimacy with the present moment because there's too much longing for things to be different. The same is true for the second, ill will. If you find something irritating, that's hard to be with. It's hard to be with something that's unpleasant. But if you begin to really create a struggle around it, so um, somebody next to you is breathing loudly or scribbling on the pad and you hear that scratching sound of the pen, it's unpleasant maybe, not what you would prefer. When your mind locks on and begins to really question their worth as a human, <laughs> you've started to, you've started to uh, deviate from the present and really, really locked into a type of aggravated uh, hatred. So you take an unpleasant moment and you can't be intimate with it. It's hard enough to be intimate with a pleasant, with an unpleasant moment. But it becomes a deep hindrance when there's a strong reactivity against what's happening. Sloth and torpor. Um, uh, Martine described a little bit last night when she said when there's laxity in the mind. Laxity is maybe a gentle way. You Sometimes the laxity gets so strong that what you're really experiencing is a very dim bulb inside. There's not much light inside and maybe a sense of heaviness, fatigue, and an, un, an inability to even have enough juice flowing in your mind to be connected. It's just a dim, murky experience. Restlessness, the fourth hindrance, is seen as sort of the opposite of the sloth and torpor. Restlessness being when there's a lot of agitation, there's a lot of energy, but it's not coherent. And so your mind will go to many different places. There's a discomfort, sometimes in a, an itchiness and a fidgeting in the body that can be a fidgeting in the mind. Your mind will go to many, many topics and not be able to stay with one. So it's difficult to be mindful and explore uh, any aspect of your experience because you keep switching the channels too quickly. And you're, it comes with a little bit of dissatisfaction and moving all the time, this hindrance of restlessness. And then the fifth is doubt. As uh, Stephen described earlier, it's not a type of hef- uh, healthy doubt where you're inquiring and not maybe understanding in the moment, but you're, you're uh, questioning, thinking something through, wondering if something's true and giving it a good go for thinking it through. That's very different than a mind that's befuddled, that's hesitant, that can't even become intimate because you don't even know which way to go. Should I actually be intimate with my breath or my body or sound? There are so many choices. Which one should I do? I wonder which one's better for me. I heard one was going to make me hear ringing for the rest of my life. Or should I be with my breath? Mm, I don't know. I wonder which one I should Just hovering and not being decisive. Or getting into your breath and feeling it. But then a type of befuddlement taking over. So you can't do a type of learning. You can't do um, any deepening of your intimacy 
because there's just too much perplexity. Your mind is not organized enough to actually see what's going on and be clear about it. So a hesitancy, a befuddlement, a type of perplexity, that can take you over for a time. <clears throat> As with doing good scientific research, we're developing a type, uh, in many labs, we developed a, some type of instrument that would heighten our sensory experience of our world. And by that heightened experience, you could have a more um, accurate read on whatever you were exploring. As we deepen our mindfulness, usually we're settling and putting aside these hindrances. And we find that we're uh, having a difficult time being mindful, being present, being intimate with our experience. Usually one or more of these hindrances are present. So that's part of the first development um, in this uh, teaching, in this practice offered by the Buddha, is how do we settle and calm the mind? How do we increase our intimacy so that we can see uh, self-evident truths? And a lot of that work is actually working with these five hindrances and seeing how you can skillfully settle them so that they're not obscuring your view. Maybe what I'll do is I'll, <clears throat> I'll just say a few more things about the hindrances and then open up for questions rather than taking the whole time as a talk. Um, the first thing the Buddha asked us to do in the uh, Satipatthana Sutta when it comes to looking at things like hindrances is just being able to know when they're happening and when they're not happening. So how many of you are having um, rage right now? <laughs> if you'd be willing to admit it, raise your hand. Okay, a few. Um, <clears throat> it's okay if you are for this experiment. But that's one of the things to know is you're not having a lot of rage right now versus being stuck in traffic or having somebody cut you off, having a flash of alarm and then some type of string of judgments. That's not happening now. The more you know that that's not happening, it highlights when it is happening. So you can be sitting there in a calm meditation sit and think, well, I'm not sure what I would do with this. I'm sitting here watching my breath. My mind's wandering a little bit, but I'm pretty present. What more could I do with this? Well, one of the things to say is, get to know what it's like in that state. And get to know which states are absent. I'm not feeling grief right now. That's true. This is what non-grief feels like. I'm not feeling anger right now. I'm feeling a little bit of sleepiness. Getting to know the states as they arise will help you wake up to when more difficult states are arising. You'll be able to catch them while they're arising. Getting to know sleepiness, getting to know restlessness, getting to know the mind that's hooked on some type of longing for your version of pleasure mind's got hooked on irritation. And then it's difficult to wake up within doubt, but see if you can. See if you can know, wow, yesterday was all making so much sense. And today, it's just a big scramble. I can't remember anything they said, and I don't really know what to do. 
in that moment, get to know this is what befuddlement is like. This is what doubt is like. This is what this type of perplexity is like. And then you might notice, as that changes later on, you are tracking things well, and you are having your own epiphanies, and you can line things up. Oh, doubt is absent now. Clarity is present. Understanding is present. So you, sometimes you can tell by the content of your experience which mental states are present. But it's an area to point your mindfulness and become intimate. A way to extend your mindfulness is knowing the states that are present and then seeing how much they change, even within a sit, even within a few minutes, maybe even with a few seconds. If you came into the room uh, calm, sitting down, and you were taken over by regret, when did it start? And as it started and picked up momentum, what was it like to be taken by that state? And then when did it pass? And how did it pass? That's building this intimacy with your mental and emotional uh, aspect of your experience. So just seeing the states and knowing them, that's the, the uh, guidance given in the third foundation of mindfulness. Knowing the states as they arise, and not being so taken by them, uh, but being intimate within them, and then seeing, if you can, the changes within them. So I'll stop there and uh, see if there are any questions. Um, yeah, and does anybody want to run the mic on this? Anybody be willing to? Yeah. There's a little red dot on it, on the handle. Right there. So we had a hand up back there. Yeah. I wonder if you could distinguish between Kamachanda and Kamatanha. Yeah. Kamachanda is the is what is um the Pali for this hindrance. It's a type of uh, longing and aspiration. Kamatanha is the craving that we have for, for experience. So if the Buddha was using his words carefully, and he tended to, um, craving tends to be a more uh, unpleasant yearning. So craving tends to be a type of, um, I'm, I'm feeling hungry, thirsty, I'm lacking, there's some discomfort when there's craving, when there's tanha. Um, Kamachanda is, you can be enjoying a, you know, yeah, some fantasy about when the street's over, this is what I want to do, and I'll go do that, and oh yeah, that would be good, oh yeah, where's my breath? Okay, normal breath, where was I again? Oh yeah. So if you're in Kamachanda, that can be a kind of a pleasant wandering but when you get into tanha, tanha is a more aggressive 
movement of the mind. It, it's more agitating. It hurt, it's, a, it's a, there's a more wrestling with it. So, and they both might arise in the same mind state. There might be craving within the aspiration, but you can have an aspiration for uh, sensual desire that may not be um, as agitating as the power of craving. The uh, tamha is a very powerful state. Chanda can be powerful, but it also might be a more um, open-ended uh, longing aspiration than that that tai aggression in tana. Yeah, here. I very much have appreciated your talk tonight. Um, Temple, you've presented ideas that I've heard many times before in a very new way, which has made them much more real for me, or real in a different way, and I very much appreciate that. And I'd like to return to impermanence um, and um, accepting that intellectually and living through the experience with material things is one level. But when the experience of impermanence is with one's own aging process, with the body not only not being able to do things it used to be able to do without any effort at all, um, but being, having those things be painful, or losing someone, yeah. someone dying, um, whom one had loved very dearly, yeah. um, it, that seems to go beyond the level of, well, the car got scratched, and of course cars get scratched. Yeah. Well, also people die, of course people die, but it's a different... It, it's, the it's grief a, that comes up is, is not something so easily dismissed. So I wondered sure. if you could address that. Sure, and it's many, many orders, orders of magnitude stronger. Um, and <clears throat> what, I, what I wouldn't want is for someone to say, oh yeah, my Aunt Sally died, so that was, that was natural, so I, I, I'm not bothered by that. You'd want to actually be very intimate with that process, and there's room for compassion. There's room for compassion, but also equanimity, with this is how things are. I worked in a hospice ward for um, one year, mostly so I could actually have a deeper understanding. I mean, did it for the service aspect of it as well. But I, I wanted to have a, a, a better understanding of the aging process and the dying process. And the people who had worked on the ward for a long time had done their time. They'd done their time to mature their relationship to death, and because it was a hospice ward, um, there's a whole large understanding of the natural uh, process around dying. And there's plenty of room for grief. I wouldn't expect any of us to be able to get it and flick a switch and then live in the freedom uh, on the other side of saying, this is the natural process. And probably losing loved ones and one's own um, aging process and facing one's own death is probably some of the highest, uh, would take the highest understanding to not be troubled by and suffer over. Yet, uh, I know that it's possible to um, 
greatly increase one's capacity to understand that. And it's usually actually by losing someone that we gain the reality of it. And that can start off a process, the the grieving process around someone passing can be how our heart and mind mature. Or you can be so overwhelmed that you shut down and it can bring up fear. But if you can stay with the aging process and stay with the dying process, even after it's happened, there's a possibility that that is what will uh, help awaken you into the reality of aging and dying. Because it's happening and it seems to be unstoppable. It seems to be what taking birth um, leads one to, an aging process and eventually a dying process. So how do we align ourselves with that? How do we open up more intimacy with these underlying truths? And usually it takes contact with the experience. And um, I'm probably not at the deep regretting side of the aging process, but I'm not, um, not so, um, so free from it either. So I've just turned a couple of corners <laughs> in my own aging process, and there's like, wow, I will never have that again. I will never have that body again. I'll never have that stage of life again. And with that, if I'm paying attention and I'm using my actual life experience to not, again, enforce this interpretation onto my life, but see, oh yeah, me too. Look at this. Interesting. When I was 20, I I couldn't imagine myself as 40. So this is what this is the actual journey. I get to actually go through my own aging process. And I can use that. I can courageously use that to help me align. It's like Taika Ra measuring those stars with great accuracy and intimacy. You actually come into your own experience and see it's happening to everybody. It's happening to everybody around us. Unless you look at fashion magazines. <laughs> They're the great promise of an old paradigm. Um, but they're also part of that delusion that there's enough makeup and surgery and uh, cologne to, <laughs> to obscure this truth. I'm not sure if that, if that helped, if that was enough. No. Continuing on the Anicca theme, hmm. one of my favorite phrases uh, from the time of the Buddha was Anicca Vata Sankara, yeah. and it continues. Um, but it strikes me that Anicca, what is it that is Anicca? It's Sankara, it's the things that are arise from previous conditions, which is basically everything, everything we see. And I, I think we often look at Anicca as referring to things forward. We're looking at time forward when we talk about Anicca, you know, I'm going to die, this building will crumble. But I find it useful to look at the past, to look at the things that I see now and understand them as getting to their present state from some prior conditions. Hmm. That aspect of Anicca, I think, uh, referring to Sankara, can be very useful. 
Yeah. Yeah, and so the word uh, sankara um, means to uh, put together, to construct something. And <clears throat> given that, as Stephen was saying, um, one of the deep understandings of the, uh, the entire universe, as far as we know it, it's made of constructed things. This building, the stars themselves have a beginning. Forces bring them together. And because forces bring them together, when those conditions supporting whatever it is change, so will that, um, that thing constructed. So the life that was in the wood in these buildings ceased when the trees died. And therefore, there's no regenerating property in the wood. Therefore, the wood is going through an aging process. It was going through a um, restorative process when it was alive, but those conditions changed when the tree died. So as the conditions in the wood change, they go through a non-regenerative process, they go through an aging process. So everything is constructed, everything that has a beginning has an end. And that's that line, Anicca Vata Sankara. Again, in, uh, in my previous life as a physicist, I keep track of um, interesting scientific bits. I still find it interesting. And it just occurred to me, I was listening to one talk, they said um, our solar system is probably about um, 4.5 billion years old, maybe 5 billion years old. And by the current calculations, they believe that our sun will go into supernova in 7 billion years. But they think that the Earth will be uninhabitable in five. That roughly means we're about halfway on the Earth. The Earth is about halfway through its lifespan. And I don't know if that's meaningful to you, but there's sort of like a midlife crisis. Oh, the planet Earth. It's like, oh, interesting. We're at that sort of a midlife crisis of um, it, the Earth came into being. The conditions that support it are changing. One of them is the nature of the sun. The sun will go through its changing process as it burns out its hydrogen. It will expand, and in expanding, um, it will evaporate the Earth. So the Earth has a birth. The Earth has an end. It's going through its process. It all is going through that process. And that's the, um, the conditionality of experience and that the conditions are constantly shifting. There are no conditions that seem to be steady. They all go through some type of process, which is what drives the Nietzsche. So, um, yeah, we'll take, uh, let me see if there was one more. Yeah, let's go here and then that will be last. Um, I'm glad you brought up this thing about the earth. I think for me, the something that disturbs me a lot is this, um, you know, climate change and the, par- the um, paradigm that science is going to find a way to fix everything. Hmm. And that, you know, well, the scientists will figure out what to do about, um, you know, drought or energy, you know, we'll, they'll figure out where we can get lots and lots of energy or more sources of water. Hmm. And so there's a kind of, I feel like we're living in the sort of delusion um, 
I think it's a delusion that scientists will find out all the answers and, and save us so we can continue to live the way we have been living and want to live in uh, our consumer society. And, um, you know, there's a kind of holding of a kind of hopefulness and also a holding of these, like you say, these facts that keep coming up and telling us that the species are going extinct and the oceans are acidifying and blah, blah, blah. And so I just feel like I live in this constant um, not knowing what's going to happen and a kind of grieving and at the same time a kind of acceptance of I'm not in control. And maybe it is, you know, that the human race will not live forever. And it's just another example. But it's really difficult, you know, to live that because you see all the suffering that's created by these um, events. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I think... uh, um, I'm not sure if Stephen will talk about this, but the, the third noble truth, as he was saying, is not necessarily the goal of this practice. It's just what happens when craving is absent is that there's not, no longer this um, aggravated suffering. But then there's room for wisdom and participation and engagement. And if we can clear our own delusion, we'll be much better participants uh, on the planet and respond to conditions as best we can. So it's unknown what we can do, but we'll do a better job if we're... Uh, if our minds are well collected and uh, there is com- compassion and wisdom. So, yeah. so uh, thank you all for your attention. And we have a walking period and then the final sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.